This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. This is our 10th episode, and I am your host, as usual, Nick Batzig. I am uh, joined today with a very special guest. We have sitting down with us, Sean Michael Lucas, who is the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Many of our listeners will be familiar with Dr. Lucas's writings. He's written numbers of books. He was previously the chief academic officer and associate professor of church history at Covenant Theological Seminary, and he is one of our leading voices in the Presbyterian Church in America, and we're thankful to have him on the show to discuss today his book, uh, The Theological Vision of Jonathan Edwards, God's Grand Design. Dr. Lucas, it's good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And as usual, we have our two East of Eden contributing panelists. We have Jeffrey C. Waddington, who's the teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey, and now is the stated supply at Knox OPC in Lansdowne. Is that right, Jeff? Lansdowne, PA? That's correct. Very much so. It's great to have you on. Good to have you on, Jeff. And we have David Filson, who is the teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And Dave, it's great to have you on the show again. So good to be here. Thanks. Every fifth episode, we like to have a guest theologian or pastor, someone who has studied deeply or written on some aspect of Jonathan Edwards and his corpus of theological writings. And we've invited Dr. Lucas to come on. Dr. Lucas began writing a book in 2009 on the theological vision, what is sort of the theological center of Jonathan Edwards. And the title of this book is God's Grand Design. It's published by Crossway. I want to encourage our listeners at the outset to pick up a copy. I found this book to be a very welcomed introduction to sort of the theological emphases of Edwards and all of his writings, and then set within the context, the different controversies and whatnot. So it's a very helpful book. I, I would happily give this to almost anybody in my church willing to go deeper in their knowledge of Edwards' historical setting and theological emphasis. And so really a, a, a very well-written, easy-to-read book. Jeff, you wanted to say something at the outset. I was interested. To, I also enjoyed this book. It is uh, one that I would be happy Indeed, thrilled to give to someone who didn't know much about Edwards but wanted a very solid introduction. This book, along with Stephen Nichols' book, Jonathan Edwards, A Guided Tour of His Life and Thought, would be the two books that I would use for that purpose. And that uh, reminded me of some comments, Sean, that you made at the beginning. Uh, You acknowledge in different words that scholarship is not really a solitary endeavor, although it uh, can feel that way on occasion. But you you mentioned that back when you worked at the Westminster Seminary Bookstore, you had the privilege of working in the back of the uh, uh, bookstore in the offices. Back in those days, you would talk about theological topics and the books you would write and the titles you would give them. And I wanted you to know that that's... uh, that's a wonderful experience and one that that I've had the privilege of sharing with someone else. Uh, so I can and and that yielded a book. 
Well, yeah, Westminster Seminary Bookstore has quite the lineage of uh, folks who've, who've worked in it and, and run uh, the bookstore all the way back to Moises Silva and Bob Godfrey. And uh, and then, of course, it was Steve Nichols and I in the back room of the bookstore. And uh, I managed the bookstore for two years, and Steve was uh, our receiving clerk. And so we, we would sit back there and uh, make up all kinds of book titles. And then, of course, Lane Tipton worked in the bookstore, and Jeff worked in the bookstore. It's it's quite it's quite a crew that's been, been through the store over the years. Even in, more interesting thing is those who are uh, followers of the Reform Forum uh, have seen the video versions of Christ the Center. You've seen the stu- what we re- have referred to uh, up until recently as the studio. Well, that studio is actually the back room. <laughs> where Sean and and Steve Nichols would would have their discussions, where Lane and I had discussions, and where others have had their discussions. So, in case you were wondering what that room was uh, looked like, you can see it on the videos that are on the Reform Forum at Christ the Center. But a, f- a phenomenal book, an excellent book. It's a spicy meatball. That's that's a phrase Dave has recently coined, Sean. Spicy meatball is getting a lot of airtime these days. So. Um, I run out of that meatball, man. It was originally said with reference to Charles Spurgeon, who I think we all could agree was a spicy meatball. Yes, and he enjoyed some spicy meatballs in his life. But that, I'm sure. That's he and Moody. getting a lot of run now, isn't it? He and Moody probably ate, ate some together. Um, <laughs> Well, um, Sean, at the outset, I was hoping you could just tell our listeners a little bit about what led you to write this book. Why write another book on Jonathan Edwards? I mean, there's so much out there, and you know, there's so many scholarly articles and biographies, and, and Yale has done such a tremendous job with their introductions and all they're doing. Why did you um, – w- what moved you to, to write this book? Yeah. Well, the the short and easy answer is that I was asked to write it. <laughs> so that was kind nice. of, you know, that kind of said, oh, yeah, maybe I ought to do this. But kind of within the, the larger uh, scope of, of what's out there at Edwards Studies, there's been a lot of stuff written about the same emphases. Um, you know, so the, you, there's, as often happens in scholarship, um, you have a, a large secondary literature that builds up around, say, freedom of the will, or around um, uh, God's glory, or around uh, his philosophical theology. And then you have these gaps. And, and one of the big gaps that I saw all the way back when I was a PhD student at Westminster Seminary uh, was this whole issue of, of redemption, uh, the work of redemption, uh, Edwards' redemptive historical method, right. um, and so as I, as I was working on those ideas and thought I was heading towards a dissertation, um, kind of focused in on redemption as an organizing principle for Edwards theology, um, I got sidetracked uh, in part because my advisor at the time said, ah, Edwards is overdone, <laughs> do something else. And so I got diverted among the Southern Presbyterians for a while. Hmm. Uh, but I, I never lost sight of this, this gap in the literature uh, about Edwards and his his understanding of God's redemptive historical work, uh, and so the more I thought about that, and then particularly as I taught uh, life and thought of Edwards at Covenant Seminary, both in '05 and '08, um, I began to see all sorts of connections between um, what theologians call the Historia Saluta, the, the history of salvation, and particularly this kind of redemptive historical approach that Edwards follows in the work of, in the history of the work of redemption. Uh, and, and 
what many theologians would call an ordo saluta, um, kind of the application of salvation in the life of an individual. Uh, and uh, so when I was, was invited to, to write a book on Edwards uh, for Crossway, um, I decided now was the time after thinking about this forever uh, to see if, if, if we could kind of bring those two themes together uh, and see how this applies to Edward's vision for the Christian life. So well, I, that's how it came about. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I remember the first time I stumbled across History of the Work of Redemption, I was trying to read through the two volumes. I was probably 25, 26 years old, and, and it, it just thrilled my heart. As I started reading History of the Work of Redemption, I thought, wow, that, you know, I had been getting into Voss, I'd been getting into biblical theology, and then to read someone so far before the guy that gets tagged as the father of biblical theology and to see this redemptive historical um, science being um, already perfected in Edwards. And that, and I think you're right that it's a driving influence. The redemptive focus um, in Edwards is everywhere a driving influence. Covenant, as you point out in chapter one, which, you know, biblical theology really is covenant theology and how right. he focuses so much on the covenant of works, Adam's position in the garden before the fall, what he would have merited, the probation period, all those things. And then the, you know, covenant of redemption and so I I was particularly thankful that you um you structured the book the way you did leading off with that chapter 1 on God's grand design the glory of God and and mm-hmm. how the history of the work of redemption really plays into um a a structuring um element for Edwards theology. Yeah. Well and 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 that the whole issue of the covenant um that's a that's a bit of a missing hole. Um, Conrad Cherry ta- uses the covenant idea uh, in his theology of Jonathan Edwards, which was published first in 1966, but doesn't really talk treat Edwards as a, a very traditional covenant theologian with a threefold you know covenant of redemption works and grace schema. Um, of course, Perry Miller famously said that Edwards was not right. a covenant theologian. Um, so that chapter uh, was was at some level an attempt to kind of say, yeah, no, actually he was pretty traditional. Um, the the chapter um, where it talked about redemption um, and particularly atonement, um, there's been some argument following Alan Gelzo, uh, the brilliant yeah. historian who started out first as an Edward scholar, but really has made all his money doing Civil War in Lincoln. Right. Um, uh, Gelzo argued that Edwards leaned towards governmental atonement, and so there's kind of a, a subterranean argument that no, actually, you know, it was very traditional Anselmian right. uh, substitutionary atonement. And so there's there's a lot of kind of if you know the secondary literature, um, I'm arguing with lots of people all along the way, even as we're trying to very simple, accessibly, it's right. not simple, but accessibly um, lay out kind of in the part one. Um, a creation, fall, redemption, consummation, story of redemption. Right. Well, I love it. And as you can tell from the title of our show, I mean, we obviously thought there was an underemphasis on the biblical theology, especially of Jonathan Edwards. And so, you know, just looking at his sermons and seeing how prevalent all the things you're drawing out are in the content of his sermon. I, I know somewhere in the first couple of chapters, you talk about Edwards being preeminently theological, not just experiential, but theological. And that really is the, the strength of Edwards. Now, when you talk about in chapter two, God's ending creating the world, you make an interesting point, And I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on this about how Edwards did focus on creation and the importance of creation, but it was almost as if it was subservient to redemption. Could you develop that a little bit? 
Yeah, and, and that was particularly in distinction from, say, later Dutch theologians like Bavink, for example, um, for whom um, the work of redemption really is grace-transforming nature. Um, for Edwards, uh, his, his approach to creation was the, the creation stands as a stage uh, upon which the work of redemption is played. Uh, and so creation, uh, at least is the way I read Edwards, um, only has its value as it is part of this larger work of providence that God is accomplishing in redemption. Um, it doesn't have value in and of itself. And in fact, uh, in the consummation, um, as opposed to the, the vision of Revelation 22, where the heavenly Jerusalem comes down, or Revelation 21, where the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth, and God puts his throne on the earth, in Edward's vision, the earth is drawn up into heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so even that, in terms of kind of thinking about how does creation work in our theology, for Edward's uh, creation was subservient, ultimately, uh, to God's work of redemption. And, you know, I didn't kind of evaluate that. I just kind of said, you know, it was more uh, descriptive. I think that's probably a weakness uh, in Edwards' theology. I think, you know, the, where the, the Dutch theologians, particularly Bavink, but others, mm-hmm. uh, have corrected that and have helped us see, you no, know, actually, um, Jesus cared for bodies. Uh, the resurrection is a sign that God is not abandoning our bodies or uh, his creation, that right. creation has value in itself, all those things. Um, I think that's a helpful corrective, right. uh, but but that's that's a difference between later theologians and Edwards. Yeah, I wonder how much, and this is a, a side side thought, but I wonder how much Edwards' postmillennialism played into which you do deal with in the chapter on consummation, and how that maybe affects even his understanding of creation, new creation, and um, the already not yet um, yeah. of that. But. I I particularly actually found your short section on page 39 and following about Edwards' work on the image of God, the image of the divine nature. Is that yeah, the typology. The typology of creation. And I, I know I've read through Edwards, and you see how he does that a lot, always drawing out these natural illustrations and how he sees them as typological spiritual things. Could you uh, just flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah. Um that's to me. That's one of the really that that that's kind of what saves Edwards' creation theology at some level. You know, I mean, it's, instead of seeing the Earth simply as a stage that could be deconstructed after redemption is accomplished, um, creation has this continuing role of pointing beyond itself. Almost, um, I, I don't think Edwards would say this, but but almost sacramentally, mm-hmm. um, in in the same way that sacraments serve as signs that point us to Jesus. So. Creation serves as a, a book of signs that points us beyond itself to God's work of redemption, and uh, you know th- that that uh, to be able to see. The, I wish I could see the world that way. Mm. You know, I, I wish I could see, you know, the world in all of its kind of mundanity you know, at times, um, in terms of this larger story that God is working out called redemption. That that all things must work together for our salvation. Uh, including 
the stuff of the stuff of earth as well as the stuff of heaven. So I love the that you give a number of illustrations on page forty and forty one, and I love the one uh, the silkworm stands as a type of Christ in this way. Uh, Edward says, when it dies, it yields us that of which we make such glorious clothing. Christ became a mm. worm for our sakes, and by his death finished that righteousness with which believers are clothed. I mean, that's even if somebody's like that's allegorizing. Well, I'd like to see you allegorize that. Well, I mean, that is magnificent. <laughs> Yeah. That Edward yeah. sees those things spiritually in in general revelation. Yeah, you know, it's it's and he doesn't, you know, he's not shy either. I mean, he talks about childbirthing. I mean, he, t- you know, there's all kinds of illustrations that he uses, both, you know, and and I, you know, again, I just wonder what it would be like to to live all of life that way, to be able to see. You know everything from the the marriage counseling conflict that I'll have later after I'm off of this phone call to you know as part of teaching me about my sin and teaching me about the glories of the Redeemer rather than simply a, a pastoral problem with which I have to deal. Mm. Yeah, I mean mm. to be able to see the world the way that Edwards does in terms of a, a larger book that points us to Christ and His redemption that. That's something I long for personally. Yeah, likewise. Well, um, as you make your way through this second chapter on creation, nature, and fall, obviously um, Edward's doctrine of the fall is supremely important in all that he writes and and says, then the doctrine of um, the imputation of Adam's guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin. And could you discuss that a little bit with us and the role that that plays throughout all that really Edward's writes? Yeah. Edwards is remarkably traditional uh, on issues related to um, Adam's headship, uh, Adam being a representative head uh, in whom all of his posterity um, uh, is accounted uh, so that when Adam falls, Adam's guilt and corruption is imputed to us. I mean, the, the, those who, um, who love the Westminster standards will find a great deal of of uh, familiarity in reading uh, Edwards' uh, book on the great Christian doctrine of original sin, mm. uh, which is kind of interesting in the light of later theological controversies. Edwards' disciples, uh, they're sometimes called the New Divinity Men, mm-hmm. um, but men like Joseph Bellamy and Samuel Hopkins, mm-hmm. uh, that was actually one of the places where they, they kind of wandered from the path was on their understanding of original sin um, and imputation. And, uh, and even a, a brilliant theologian like John Murray raised a number of questions about what Edwards taught uh, in terms of whether um, our sin is immediately imputed to us uh, from Adam or whether it's immediately it comes to us in some kind of mediatedly, uh, to kind of stress out the word, way. Um, so Edwards has not always been seen as, as, you know, because of the later developments as being super orthodox on the issues of original sin, but at least in my reading of, of the Great Christian Doctrine of Original Sin, uh, as well as the miscellanies and, and his sermons, um, he actually, you know, very much follows in line with the, the Presbyterian Reformed tradition when it comes to uh, Adam's headship and the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was Hodge that maybe made the criticism that Edwards was uh, to blame for the new divinity and for Hopkinsianism. And yeah. um, and I would probably differ. I mean, I in what I've 
read of Edwards, he is very, like you said, very kind of old school. He's, he's very traditional in his right. understanding. Um, so I, I found that to be very helpful. Uh, Jeff or Dave, would y'all like to input anything at this yeah, point? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I believe that John Gerstner probably corrected uh, Murray's misperception, misperception of that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, or no, no, maybe it's Murray himself. Uh, now my memory's, I'm getting old, but uh, I believe actually it was Murray who says uh, that, that Edwards had it brilliantly includes in, in the fall of Adam, not only the external act of eating the forbidden fruit, but also including what went on internally in the mind of Adam and Eve uh, and that, because he included that, that's might might have be the cause of the uh, misunderstanding of Edwards uh, as of you know departing from the reformed uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe it's it's either Gerstner or Murray who comes out and says actually at the end of the day he's more re- more re- oh, maybe it's Gerstner who says he's more immediate than than the traditional and mm-hmm. immediate understanding of the imputation of Adam's sin. Uh, very, very helpful, and, and I think you you bring that all out, Sean, very well. Again, uh, nicely put, uh, and and uh, to the point. Yeah, you know, I think it's important there. You know, with, you mentioned Hodge there, Nick. Um, the the Princeton tradition, you know, being willing to critique Edwards was nonetheless, I think, committed to. Um, sort of tweaking where they could. I mean, you know, you think of Warfield, who, if I'm not mistaken, said that though he uses the language of realism with regard to imputation, nonetheless, he's essentially federal. It was A.A. Hodge who said of Edwards that uh, he was possessed of a great many ideas, some of which need regulating. And then (laughs) you go back to Charles Hodge, who said that there is the criticism of Edwards veering toward pantheism with regard to his doctrine of continuous creation, yet right. he gave that, what, four or five-step test to prove that Edwards passes the test and is, is not a pantheist. But they, you know, while they wanted to guard and they, they were also willing to, to critique him. Sean, I, um, I love chapter three, the, uh, the chapter on redemption, because as you go through it so clearly, uh, following Edwards through the Old Testament, how redemption is typified or shadowed, just very, very clear. I, I love that. And then you get into, from that, uh, a discussion of his doctrine uh, of the atonement. What do you think, um, you mentioned this a little earlier when we were starting out, uh, various views on Edwards and atonement. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think are some of the ways that we can get at a good understanding of him there? Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, when Alan Gelza wrote uh, Edwards and the Will back in 1989, we didn't have access, uh, at least most of uh, suffering grad students who couldn't afford trips to the Beinecke, um, we didn't have access to the miscellanies, and that was what Gelzo kind of darkly suggested was, you know, if everyone had access to the miscellanies, then you would see blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, actually, now that the miscellanies are out there, you know, Edwards was actually very traditional, lo and behold, on on issues of redemption, which which you would have to kind of expect him to be at some level, simply because so much of what he he spoke of uh, in terms of sin and redemption involved uh, substitutionary language. I mean, all throughout his sermons, when he one of his default ways of talking about 
um, uh, Christ's work of redemption was to talk in terms of substitution. Uh, and so it would have been odd at some level uh, for Edwards to have, have been kind of veered in the direction of what his disciples did. Um, Joseph Bellamy certainly did hold to governmental atonement. Uh, and it was a place, uh, as Bellamy and Hopkins uh, in the later 19th century tradition, um, you know, they're living in the early republic. They're thinking in terms of God as a great moral governor. I mean, governmental atonement language makes sense in that world, where it doesn't make sense in Edward's world. Right. Um, his thought world is still much more Puritan, much more, uh, you know, closer to Calvin in some ways than Charles Finney, although um, there is one place where I think Gelder does make a pretty good argument about the, the new divinity train and connecting Edwards and Finney. But it's not on atonement. It's it's on freedom of the will. Yeah, you, you aptly point out the use of Edwards' language. I mean, purchase, satisfaction, humiliation. And um, we've had Craig Buell on the show to talk about the idea of, you know, infinite merit and all that Edwards has to say about you know, Christ's person being uh, infinite because of the hypostatic union and mm -hmm. that God the Father saw the infinite blood with which he purchased eternal life for his people and by which he purchased the spirit for them and by which he satisfied the wrath of God, the infinite wrath of God, and how important that is in Edwards, that it's unthinkable that that you could read Edwards and not walk away with a substitutionary atonement understanding of the cross. Well, I agree. I, I, Agree. Um, the you mentioned earlier, Sean, that that Edwards is Anselmic. Well, actually, if you read Anselm's Credeus Homo, he does talk about God as the moral governor of the universe. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, but the atonement, I think you would agree, is not in Anselm nor in Edwards reduced to uh, God as moral governor. It's the context in which the atonement is properly understood. Uh, but yeah. there's more to the governmental theory than then that God is just is the moral governor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, governmental theory allows basically for a, the potential of an unlimited atonement. It makes it basically the idea that the Christ atonement makes it safe for God to forgive sin, uh, and hence it has the potential of an unlimited application or a, a an indefinite application, which is contrary to what Edwards was talking about. Edwards was would would you know inevitably talk in terms of a definite purchase or a particular redemption uh, of God uh, purchasing redemption through Jesus Christ for his people, for the elect. So there, there would be some, that would be the difference there. Now, now is it possible, um, who was it, Hopkins or Bellamy, who wrote the book Christianity Truly Explained or something delineated? Uh, 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 Bellamy. And what, didn't, isn't that where the governmental theory is first broached by the disciples of Edwards. Right, and, and Edwards wrote the uh, preface for Bellamy's book, right. and that's that's been kind of the, the connection. But that, I mean, you know, at some level, I mean, that's kind of a guilt by association kind exactly. of argument. It, you know, exactly. it, it, it'd be like blaming someone who wrote a blurb for a book <laughs> and said, you know, I like the guy, I like the book, you know, and then holding him accountable for every single idea in the book. It's I mean, like, it's like, right. it's like saying J.I. Packer believes everything. Because he writes a preface <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> yeah, but see, I don't really think J.I. Packer actually wrote all. I think there's a community called J.I. Packer, and they actually, you know, kind of like the Johannan community. There's this community called J.I. Packer that writes all the blurb. That's so. a very nice thought. For, that's <laughs> very <laughs> yeah, switching gears just a little bit. Uh, the chapter on consummation, and this is an area 
with regard to you know Edwards nomenclature, where sometimes uh, the student of Edwards has to take a bottle of aspirin with them when they when they read him. But you deal with uh, not just in the chapter on consummation, but later in the chapter on the ministry of the word and and different places dealing with the affections in the book. Uh, Edward's language of love of benevolence, love of complacency, that the, mm-hmm. the consummation of all things is going to involve a sweet harmony. Uh, how do you see Edward's doctrine of harmony, beauty, fitness, et cetera, figuring into God's grand design? Oh, yeah. Well, and that's that's one of those big connections, you know, that's ultimately rooted back in that first chapter where I talk about Trinity. Um, because within Edward, I mean, in some ways, uh, I, I think you could make the argument, as Amy Powell does uh, in her books, The Surprising Harmony of God, uh, that, that Edward's Trinitarian thought is fundamental to everything else. And so, you know, as Edwards works out his Trinitarian thought that, that God is ultimately God, the idea of God and God's delight in God's own self, um, this, this kind of eternal consent of the three, this eternal harmony of the three um, that expresses both oneness and threeness, both unity and diversity, um, that, that uh, delight that God has in himself flows out towards creation, uh, not in any kind of uh, way where God needs creation in order to be complete, but rather love can't remain within uh, the, 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 the lovers. It always has to, to flow out, outside of itself. Uh, and the large picture then is of God um, delighting in himself with this, this eternal love of benevolence um, where um, uh, God is willing to set aside even his own rights uh, in order to to love God and love his own creation. Uh, and this love then pours out toward creation. And God's grand design ultimately is for creation to be both reflecting that love and then be drawn up into God's own love. And uh, it, that's the big capacious vision. Uh, that's ultimately where the work of redemption is driving. It's, it's eschatological. Uh, and that's another place, I think, where Edwards coheres nicely with our Reformed tradition. I mean, Voss taught at least us Westminster grads to say <laughs> that you know that that everything in the Bible is eschatological, uh, and and I think that's right. And Edwards has his finger on that. That you know where where the the entire story of redemption is going is ultimately God drawing His creation into His own love, so that there's sweet harmony and consent, and everything partakes of the divine nature in that way. There there is a. Um... There's probably a lot more work that can be done on Edwards and eschatology because it is such a driving factor, as you've noted. And even his millenarianism and his expectation for the world to largely be Christianized, though, um, he obviously didn't believe that that would mean everyone would be converted, but that wars would cease, that there would be this time of great peace and prosperity, kind of this golden age that many of the Puritans held on to. And I remember I was in... um, I was in Scotland at um, the University of Glasgow back in 2009, at, uh, given a paper to Jonathan Edwards in Scotland conference and talked to Wilson Kimnack about that and how, you know, even the, the concert of prayer, uh, the, the Scottish acquaintance with Edwards, Edwards reaching out to the Scottish men that so respected him, was really driven by his postmillennial expectations for a Christianized world in large part. Yeah. Um, which is interesting that that's such that even though I may be critical of his postmillennialism to the degree in which he takes it in history of the work of redemption and and elsewhere in his writings, nevertheless his he was driven by eschatology. Yeah, 
Well, and and that's a place where I think you know the lines between um, Edwards' post-millennialism and those of us who are optimistic amillennialists, if you will. I mean, there's probably not much of a line there I, at the end of the day. I mean, because you know some of what Edwards said in terms of the conversion of Africa, um, you know, the, the the transition of Christianity to um, you know the the southern hemisphere, if you will. I mean, that that's actually happening in our day, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that Edwards, um, you know, that he saw this this kind of expectation that there would not be a, a place on this of, on God's world where where the praise of God would not happen. And that was a pretty amazing vision for a guy sitting on a frontier mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in, in Western Massachusetts. And here we are basically 250 years, uh, 260 years after Edwards is dead. And it's, it's basically happening that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of an amazing thought when you think of it. So it is. He had a uh, a global vision for the kingdom because of um, his eschatological hope, and that's really yeah. really amazing. Now, in chapters five through nine, you really deal with what we could talk about the experiential aspects of Edwards, which is what I think Dave and and Jeff and I have been so quick to guard against going right there because that's kind of how everybody cast Edwards as overly introspective or overly experiential. I know he's been under attack even from some of the Reformed theologians I respect in our day um, because they haven't seen this robust theological foundation like you've pointed out, the Historia Salutis emphasis and the the strong theological um, foundation that you have in him. But you have these books like Religious Affections and you have sermons like A Divine and Supernatural Light Imparted and all this emphasis on things that are utterly important, I believe. Could you yeah. talk? Could you introduce our um, listeners just to a little bit about um, the place of the experiencing redemption in in the life and writing of Edwards? Yeah, but really, one of the foundational things about Edwards is his his theory of of knowledge or his epistemology. Um, for Edwards, um, knowing there's there's two kinds of knowing. Um, there's speculative knowing and there's sensible knowing, uh, and and in some ways he's working within the the, the uh, theological the intellectual culture, if you will, of John Locke. Um, our primary kind of knowing is is sensible knowing, or we know by means of sensation. So if I were to get up from the chair I'm sitting in and walk across my room here in my office and you know hit my foot against the couch, there's the sensing knowing that comes from hitting my foot against the couch. Um, that's primary kind of knowing. Um, then my speculative knowing uh, would then begin to categorize or reflect upon that sensation. Okay, what did I just do? Well, I just kicked the couch. Well, that was really stupid. Now, you know, what does this mean? Is my foot broken? Da, da, da. And I would go through a, a, a great deal of, of intellectual processing to process and reflect upon um, the sensations that I've just experienced. That that distinction between speculative knowing and sensible knowing, which is, shows up in a number of places in Edwards, um, is foundational for understanding what Edwards is talking about when he, in religious affections, is talking about the new sense of the heart. Um, what, what he's ultimately, and when Edwards is talking about the new sense of the heart, he's really talking about the same thing that he was talking about in the divine and supernatural light when he talked about uh, a divine and supernatural light imparted immediately to the soul or supernatural knowledge or excuse me, sensible knowledge imparted directly to the soul. Mm -hmm. That is, there's, there's a, uh, a, 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 a more fundamental kind of, of knowing, um, 
that it involves sensation, that involves uh, affection, that involves the movement of the will, uh, ultimately, that our minds or our intellectual knowing then begin to process in a second-order kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that regard, he actually coheres pretty nicely with what our Confession of Faith talks about in effectual calling. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because effectual calling really is the work of the Holy Spirit um, that enlightens the mind and uh, engages the will to enable us to embrace Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Uh, and so there, there, there is some coherence there, but, that, but his epistemology is really fundamental for understanding what he's up to in both religious affection and in some of the other things. And I may be wrong about this, but I've always understood that Edwards is here carrying on the Puritan spirituality. You know, he was submerged in the writings of the New England Puritans before him, you know, his, those his grandfather ministered with and before him. And and the divines often quotes Goodwin and other of the Westminster divines and that he is carrying on maybe in a more philosophically nuanced way the Puritan spirituality. And so I know there's debate over whether you consider Edwards a Puritan or not, but I have no problem doing so, even though he's kind of born out of time because he is giving you what I read in the Puritans. I mean, a need, oh, yeah. a needful experientialism. Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, one, a book that really is profoundly impacted the way I kind of read 17th and 18th century early America was Janice Knight's book, Orthodoxies in Massachusetts, oh, yeah. uh, where she, uh, she basically argued in trying to understand the antinomian controversy that occurs in New England in between 1636 and 1638. She, she argues that it's really a clash within the Puritan tradition between the intellectual fathers and the spiritual brothers. Hmm. So the, the spiritual brothers being guys like uh, John Cotton, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Sibbs, others, the intellectual fathers being guys like William Perkins, Thomas Shepard, others. Mm-hmm. And in Edwards, what you ha- what I would argue, what you have is the bringing together of both traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, you know, you have this wonderful uh, experientialism that comes from the spiritual brothers but you also have uh, both the the uh, kind of the, the theological side, but also kind of the evidentiary approach to sanctification that you would find in the intellectual fathers. They're both present in Edwards and really come together nicely in religious affections. I absolutely agree with with that assessment, and I actually was thinking of Janice Knight's book, uh, Sean. So uh, uh, I appreciate your reference to her to her work, uh, Orthodoxies in Massachusetts. Uh, Edwards kind of comes in at the end of that book, and uh, yes, he does. Yeah, spending most of the time dealing with the the, the antinomian controversy. Uh, I thought your chapters five through through eight were were kind of the heart of the of the book, or at least the heart of the redemption applied section, and yeah. and, and uh, really is all over the place in Edwards, which you you give evidence of. It's not merely in the religious affections. It's not merely in a divine and supernatural light, but it's the miscellaneous sermons, uh, theological and practical treatises. It's all over the place in Edwards, early, middle, and late. So, and I think if something that, uh, that Nick touched on, I, I believe that this is really uh, taking the Puritan tradition and maybe filtering it through the lens of, of John Locke. Bringing bring the two together in a very helpful way, but any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I think Edwards is is uh, reading through his epistemology, uh, the, the commitments that he developed very young from reading Locke. Um, to me, in those chapters, probably the the most interesting part was the chapter that I uh, wrote on on the reality of self-deception, yeah. uh, simply because for me pastorally, I mean, that, <laughs> that's, I, I deal with that all the time. Uh, I mean, I, you know, just a few weeks ago sat here in my office with a guy who's in, you know, uh, has basically destroyed his marriage through infidelity and, and so forth. And, and as we, as we met with him as elders, um, and he's saying, oh yes, I'm repentant, you know, but you don't want to return to your wife. No, you know, my sin's too great. And so, you know, we kept coming back to saying, you know, you say your sin's too great. You say your guilt's too great. You say your sin's too great. Colossians 2 says Jesus has nailed everything to the cross. That's right. Um, you know, which are you going to believe? Well, I just can't believe. Well, the problem was the guy's self-deceived. Right. I mean, fundamentally, he's a hypocrite. And if I didn't have Edward's categories of the not signs and uh, the issues related to self-deception, as a pastor, I, I would be extremely frustrated in trying to know what I was seeing in the life of my congregation. So, so to me, that was a very it was a it was a helpful chapter to write. It wasn't fun, but it was a helpful chapter to write for me pastorally. Yeah, it is important. You know, we've talked and I've raised the criticism that Edwards at times does, I think, err on the side of hyper introspection. I mean, there's no way you could read True Grace Distinguished from the Devils and walk away and be like, I'm a Christian. I mean, it is very <laughs> searching, but. Your point is um, outstanding that we need these categories because there are hypocrites. There are those three soils. There are, you know, people who have God's spirit moving on them temporarily and mm -hmm. the devil deceiving. And we have to know that we have to preach that because it's it's so seldom preached. I know we have to handle it with care, but yeah. um, it is so seldom preached. And so I appreciate it. Even the title, The Dark Side of Religious yeah. Affections, what you titled that. Well, and I think, too, my church, uh, being in a first church in the South, um, is probably the closest experience we still have left to the kind of congregational ministry that Edwards did. I mean, you know, Edwards is is in a town where everyone in town basically goes to his church. Um, and most of them have been, because of Stoddard's innovations, have been admitted to the table. Uh, and yet most, many of them are unconverted. Well, that, I mean, that's very similar to, you know, in a, a, a southern town where you're a first mm -hmm. church and mm -hmm. people know the religious language and, um, and so they're admitted as members and yet, you know, they're not converted. And so I, I know for, for me, you know, in terms of my own pastoral ministry that kind of, follows in the same line. I'm constantly, I mean, I, this Sunday I'm beginning a series on First John. I mean, the whole purpose of which is to basically, you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and to raise these kinds of questions. Are you in fact converted? Uh, I did the same thing last fall when I preached the Sermon on the Mount. I did the same thing before when I preached the Hebrews. You know, it's to try to raise the questions, are you self-deceived uh, in order to bring about, you know, to see if God would bring about genuine conversions. And so, I think that's a place where, pastorally speaking, you know, I think we probably misread religious affections if we simply read it in terms of our own personal piety mm -hmm. instead of a book of pastoral theology. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Um, yeah. I also yeah. like how this book progresses and how that you develop this after dealing with the more experiential elements. You move into what we call the means of grace, the ministry of the word, and then you deal with the historical setting of the controversies around baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
um, because there could be a danger to take sort of this hyper emphasis on to take an, a hyper emphasis on experientialism to the uh, exclusion of means and so end up in sort of a mysticism, which Edwards would never fall into. Um, could you talk just a little bit about um, the place that the means of grace, what we call the means of grace play in the theology of Edwards? Yeah, that's another surprising thing that comes out in religious affections is that he ends talking about preaching hmm. and the importance of preaching for the lives of people. Uh, and that was kind of my first clue that said, you know, this really isn't about, you know, introspection per se, my, me and Jesus. And uh, it really is more a more, if you will, churchly uh, approach to Christian assurance than perhaps we've read it in the past. Uh, and so uh, writing those chapters on um, uh, the ministry of the word, uh, sacraments and prayer, um, the means of grace, uh, it, it was it was a great opportunity to kind of think through again what our catechism teaches us when it talks about the the means of grace being a and the ordinary means of our salvation or, or the the effectual means of our salvation. Uh, Edwards very much believed that. Obviously, he placed a high uh, uh, had a high place for preaching, uh, but but most people don't realize how much he really had to say about baptism. In fact, he really believed that the communion controversy uh, that ultimately undid his ministry at Northampton, he believed it was more about baptism hmm. than it was about the Lord's Supper, hmm. uh, because uh, restricting access to the Supper uh, to only those who are converted meant that uh, you would not have then communicant church members, and those communicant church members could not baptize their children. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so and if you don't baptize your children, then how will they stay in the New England way? Were you undoing the fa fabric of, of society? I mean, it was, it was as much about baptism as anything else. And so Edwards has a lot to say in, um, in his writings on the controversy about baptism mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and really in ways that cohere quite nicely with kind of conservative evangelical Presbyterianism. Uh, it's kind of remarkable in some ways how much coherence there is between Edward's theology of baptism and what you would find in a typical PCA church. Right. And so we would, we would like all our Baptist friends to read Edwards on baptism too, because <laughs> my best friends in the world are Baptists and they love Edwards. And I just want to be like, have you read him on covenantal baptism? Because he's really good. So um, mm. it is helpful. It's, it's very helpful to know those controversies that he inherited you know, from his grandfather and all that went on there in that setting with regard to the sacraments. Um, we are just about out of time, so I wanted to give Dave or Jeff an opportunity to ask any questions or any final input. Sean, I'm curious, you know, uh, a book like this that's not, you know, a thousand-page tome, yet at the same time is wide-ranging and covers a lot of ground. I'm curious kind of how you researched and just sort of mechanically went about uh, researching and writing this book. And then I'm also curious what you think about McClellan and Dermott's uh, recent uh, larger uh, theology of Edwards. Yeah. Well, the this book was kind of a long time in coming. Uh, so it really did uh, at least initially rely on, um, goodness, over 20 years of reading Edwards. And uh, uh, so I'm sitting here in my office looking at the Yale edition, and as each volume came out, I'd devour it and highlight it and marked and stuff. Um, but one of the things that has been was hugely helpful in the actual writing when I was sitting down and writing uh, was the um, 
the Yale University, the Works of Jonathan Edwards website, they have a tremendous search engine of all the things that have been published as well as all the unpublished manuscripts. It's really a, a treasure. And, and that was instrumental in, in tracking down things that I couldn't find quickly in my own books um, in trying to figure out, you know, unpublished things that would cohere to, to try to give a, a good representation of the corpus. So, so yeah, it was, it was kind of a combination of kind of traditional research and my own reading over the last 20 years coupled together with utilizing that search engine, which was a big help. The new McClyman McDermott, I mean, that's, it's, I, I hope what people will see, you know, it's, we, we go like forever without a theology of Jonathan Edwards and then basically two come out in like a month. Um, but I, I hope when people look at that, they'll find that it's, 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 it's brilliant, it's thorough, uh, it's extremely well written, uh, it's also 750 pages, uh, it's currently in hardback, so it's very expensive. Uh, and so I, I hope as people kind of look at um, uh, Mike and Jerry's book and my book, they'll see them as complementary. Um, I've, I've been relieved to see that we say largely the same things on certain things. Um, so I wasn't too far off. Um, but that, you know, while the, the McClyman McDermott could, is really towards specialists and those who are really big Edwards people, my book really is meant to be a doorway into Edwards um, for like like you guys were saying at the beginning, for a church member who wants to know about Edwards but doesn't you know doesn't know where to begin or needs an orientation uh, or um, I mean if I ever teach Edwards again I would use this book for a uh, a classroom setting whereas the McDermott McClimate book would be v pretty difficult to use for a classroom setting uh, unless you're doing a doctoral seminar or something so so you know those are some some similarities and differences but you know obviously it's a great joy to have something as encyclopedic as what Mike and Jerry have done yeah again I want to echo what I said at the beginning that I think this book is really uh, a very good book to give to lay people. Um, I've been working through the sermons of Edwards for Sunday school at our church, and I plan on putting these out on the book table, encouraging our people to get them so they can um, get more of a sense of the flow of his theology, his emphases. And and you've done a great job, Sean, of putting um, in the footnotes. I always encourage guys, read the footnotes. That's where all the good stuff is usually. Um, a lot of great resources. Uh, Sean has also put uh, two appendix in the back of the book. One of them is Where Do I Begin? An Annotated Bibliography, where he gives a list of a number of the most important books out there, and then uh, a description, a paragraph about each of those. That's very helpful. I think that um, anyone, seminarians, you know, lay, laymen, anybody would benefit from this. And then there's a, a chapter in the back, A Man Just Like Us, Jonathan Edwards and Spiritual Formation for Ministerial Candidates. So um, there's a lot more in this book that we didn't have time to cover. Sean, it has been great having you on, and I'm very excited um, about the release of this book and thankful that you took the time to come on the show. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Thanks for having me. want to encourage our listeners to visit uh, Sean's website, um, church website at First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg. That's H-A-T-T-I-E-S-B-U-R-G, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, to listen to some of his sermons. I know Sean has lectures all over online that you can listen to. Um, you can find Jeff at uh, blogging at feedingonchrist.com there with me and also um, a lot of Jeff's sermons are over at calvary-amwell.org. 
And now, hopefully, many of them will be up as he's been preaching at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, PA. As usual, you can find Dave on the web. His blog is teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. And you can listen to some of Dave's sermons over at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee at their website. Again, we want to thank you for taking the time to tune in and listen to this episode of East of Eden. And we hope that you'll join us again as we consider more of the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards.